Indeed. I think it's begun now. It's all yours, Rob. Fantastic. Okay, so firstly, the shortish tonight is dedicated uh, Naomi Ma'ira Bat Shoshana Rivka Rezel, and we wish Rabbi Hashem a complete refuah. We thank uh, Barbara Mandanov for sponsoring it. And Bezat Hashem, the merit of our Torah this evening will be in her, uh, will be Bezat Hashem be able to give a full recovery. And uh, yeah. Okay. Amen. So I want to uh, say firstly thank you to Sina. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for bringing this Teshuvah to my attention. Um, you asked me a few months ago to translate this for you and I went through it and it was interesting. And you asked me a second time to go through it. And then I uh, started to appreciate how incredible it was. And then I started to read about all the background behind this Teshuvah. And yeah, I decided I think we have to do a shoe on this. This is a fascinating shoe tonight. Um, and it's just, it's so beautiful because it just sets you in the context of ancient Sfarad. It sets you in the context of our Sfadi Hachamim, how they approached the world around us, how they saw other disciplines in relation to the Torah, and how we should be proud, I believe, of our Sfaradi tradition and the way we approach the world around us. So we're going to be discussing this evening um, mainly the interaction between Torah and other disciplines. Is there a contradiction between being well-versed in contemporary philosophy, science, and at the same time being a pious and believing Jew? Right? Is the fact that a person is immersed in philosophy and immersed in general culture, culture is this something which takes away from his dedication to the Torah? Or is this something which actually increases his dedication to the Torah? And this is the question which is going to be rearing its head over and over again throughout the Teshuvah we're going to see this evening. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be examining a Teshuvah of the Me'iri, written at the end of 1305, so it's just over 700 years ago. Who was the Me'iri? Me'iri was born in 1249. And he wrote his famous Beta Bechira. Anyone who's been to Yeshiva would have learned Beta Bechira, which is it's his magnum opus. And it's a commentary on the Gemara based on the style of the Rambam. His name was not Meir. People mistakenly think that because he's called Meiri, his name was Meir. His name was actually Menachem ben Shlomo. But he was called Meiri because of a descendant. Uh, he was the descendant of a certain honorable ancestor whose name the entire family bore. This was common in those days where you would call someone from his family. Um, and he had an ancestor called Meir, and therefore was called Hameiri the Meiri. But his real name was Menachem ben Shlomo. And to appreciate this Teshuvah, we need to understand the historical context of it. Every, the truth is, every halachic Teshuvah, if you want to understand it, you have to see the whole background of where it's written, where it's written, to what, to what is it being written. But this is a Teshuvah where you can only fully appreciate it if you understand the background to the Teshuvah and the historical context. And this Teshuvah touches on so many important things. I'm just going to mention a few, but we'll see them as we go through. 
firstly, the jurisdiction of one community over another. Does a community have the ability to adjudicate over another community? Is there any point in making bans and uh, excommunications and all these types of things? Is there any point in these types of things or are these things for the past? Um, what about allegorizing the Torah? Are we allowed to allegorize the Torah? What are the limitations to allegorizing the Torah? And most importantly, which we'll see over and over again, is the pursuit of philosophical studies. Is this something to be condemned? Or alternatively, something to be recommended and advanced as much as possible? So these are the points we're going to be touching upon. As I said, in order to appreciate the Teshuvah, we need to start from the beginning and understand the historical background to this Teshuvah. Let's go back a few centuries. To introduce this controversy, which this Teshuvah is addressing, we have to go back to as early as the 10th century. And already then, Jews living in Islamic lands, they came into contact with the philosophical tradition of the ancient Greeks, which were then elaborated by the Arabs. And they, as a result, Hachamim of the time sought to reinterpret parts of the Torah as a result of this encounter. When you are open and exposed to different philosophies and you're living among such people, then you need to try to understand their philosophy and see what the Torah has to say about that. And the most prominent hacham in, the first, in this first medieval phase was, of course, of Sa'adya Gaon, who, in fact, incorporated some of the Islamic thought of the Kalam school in his book, Emunot Vedeot, Books of Beliefs and Opinions. This trend continued in the 11th, 12th centuries through Ibn Ezra, for example, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Dawood, not to be confused with the Ra'avad later on. He's the first Ra'avad. There are, in fact, three Ra'avads. He was the first Ra'avad. He wrote the book Emunah Ramah. And, of course, the Rambam later on in the second part of the 12th century. And I want to say from the beginning is that I don't want to categorize it, and not all Chachamim living in Muslim Spain felt drawn to the, um, to the Greco-Arabic philosophical tradition. For example, you have Rabbi Huda Levi, the author of the Kuzari, who had a very different vision. You had Rav Bachaye ben Pekuda, the author of Chavot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, who had a different, a different way of understanding HaKadosh Baruch Hu and different means of appreciating God. So not all Chachamim living in Islamic countries um, encountered this culture of philosophy of the Greek and Arabic philosophy, but many did. And a lot of these Chachamim were living in southern Spain, in Andalusia. And we need to see a map to appreciate what's going on. I'm going to share the screen with you. And you're going to see a map to see what's going on here. So can we see this? So we have Spain here. We've got France here. And we've got Andalusia here. Andalusia is south of Spain. And pay attention already now. We'll come back to this soon. Catalonia in north of Spain. Languedoc here in southern France. Okay. Now. Many of these hachamim who encountered the Islamic world around them and their philosophy, which was came from the Greeks, 
they were living in Andalusia, in southern Spain, which was at the time under Muslim control. In 1147, unfortunately, the Jews of Andalusia were forced to leave their homes when radical Islamists coming from North Africa persecuted the Jews of southern Spain, and these Andalusian Jews moved across the world. Some relocated to other parts of the world, many relocated to the north of Spain, i.e. Christian Spain, because at that time, the southern and northern Spain was divided between Christians um, in the north and Muslims in the south. But a vast, a lot of this, these Andalusian Jews moved to a place called Languedoc. So again, have a look at the screen. Languedoc here is in what we call today the south of France. So anyone who's been on holiday in the south of France, you'll have encountered um, cities like uh, Toulouse, Montpellier, Marseille, um, Perpignan, these kinds of places which we're going to be talking about in due course. So a, a great amount of Jews from Andalusia were expelled in 1147 and they make their way up to southern France, Languedoc. And the intellectual elite of Languedoc Jewry, they welcome their, these hachamim who are coming you know, they've been persecuted, they're coming to seek refuge, and they welcome them. And before this, before the mid-12th century, Jews in Languedoc, they had no knowledge of the Arabic language in which the learning of Andalusia was contained. Of course, if you're in southern Spain, Andalusia, the people learning there are studying in, in Arabic. But once word starts to spread, often new hachamim who have arrived, their philosophy, what happens is, is the Hachamim in Languedoc start to commission translations of the major philosophical works and scientific works which were written in Andalusia. And in fact, we have five generations of the Tibon family. Ibn Tibon famously was the translator of the Morene Vuchim, the guide to the perplex of Berambam. We have five generations of the Tibon family involved in translation of these works. Because they're all written in Arabic, in Andalusia, in southern Spain. And they're coming down to Languedoc, and these hachamim living in Languedoc are curious, they're interested, and they say, fine, translate these works to Hebrew, we can start to understand them and study them. And these translations begin with the works of the classical hachamim, of Saadia Gaon, Rabbeinu Bechayet, Shlomo ibn Gabirol, and of course the Rambam. Of Shmuel ibn Tibon, trans he translates the... Um, the Moreh Nebuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed in 1204. But it doesn't stop with that. They're not content just knowing the um, Hebrew books, the Jewish books written by the Hachamim of Andalusia. They want to know the other disciplines. And so the, this translation continues with all the Arabic works of maths, astronomy, philosophy, medicine, physics all being translated into Hebrew. Now, of course, when you have a culture exposed to such intellectual disciplines, then this is going to have an impact on the culture. And as I said, the Jews are migrating from Andalusia to Languedoc in the middle of the 12th century. 150 years later, by the beginning of the 14th century, Languedoc has become a hub of intellectual curiosity 
and philosophical and scientific investigation. And what happens is, interestingly, is let's have a look back again at the map. What happens is, is that Languedoc has become a place of, as I said, this, you know, this intellectual and philosophical and scientific investigation. Here in North Spain, Catalonia is actually becoming quite Kabbalistic. There they, they're not exposed to this philosophical investigation of southern France. And here they're focusing in Catalonia, despite it being relatively near, in Catalonia they're focusing more on Kabbalah. And that's an important point to bear in mind, which we'll see will have an effect on what happens later on. Now, let's just remind ourselves briefly of the controversy with the Rambam in the early 13th century. There had been minor controversies during the lifetime of the Rambam. The Rambam lived 1140 to 1205. And there had been some controversies during his lifetime, minor ones which the Rambam addressed and he wrote certain letters about, but the main controversy concerning the Rambam was after his death. As I said earlier on, the Rambam's work, Moren Nebuchim, was translated in 1204 by Shmuel ibn Tibon. This is one year before the Rambam died. Now, of course, after translating a work, it takes time for that to seep into the culture around. So here is Shmuel ibn Tibon. He's translating in Languedoc. He's translating the Moreh. And it takes about 30 years till the Moreh, the guide, actually becomes prevalent in the surrounding cultures. And as people begin to study the Moreh more and more, people, certain people have become uneasy with the Rambam's incorporation of uh, Greco-Arab philosophy and comes along to great Hachamim, the Rashba of Montpellier. Now, let's not confuse this. Again, if you have any questions throughout the evening on names or on geography or please feel free to unmute yourself and ask or to send in the chat box. Let's not confuse this Rashba with the Rashba we're going to be focusing on later this evening. This is a different Rashba. This is uh, Rabbeinu Shlomo ben Avraham from Montpellier. And he, together with Rabbeinu Yonah of Girondi, they instigate the Hachamim of northern France to enact a universal ban against the works of the Rambam. A universal ban. And their arguments are threefold. There are three main arguments, which is fascinating. The exact three arguments come back 70 years later, which is what we're going to be discussing this evening. But what are their three main arguments? Number one, theologically. They say, look, these Rambam Maimonidean philosophers, they deny miracles. They see, they try to rationalize everything, and all miracles in the Torah to be understood rationally, none of these miracles really took place as they're written in the Torah. And this, of course, undermines the authority of the Torah. The second major problem they have is the way the Hachamim, the Maimonidean Hachamir, are interpreting the Torah. And they argue, uh, these, the north, and north of France Hachamim, that these philosophers are just allegorizing the Torah. They strip the Torah of its literal sense, and everything that becomes an allegory 
and this takes away from the sanctity of the Torah. The third concern is practically is that apparently these philosophers are suspect in laxity in certain mitzvot, right? One mitzvah which, which reappears over and over again, I don't know why, is tefillin. The philosophers keep, keep on being accused of being lax with tefillin. Apparently, certain people in the sect of the philosophers were lax with tefillin because they interpreted it to mean just What's the feeling about? It's about Yichud Hashem. It's about recognizing Kadosh Baruch Hu through our hearts and our minds. And apparently there were some people who took this to an extreme and said, look, if I can get that message without a feeling, it's fine. Anyway, these are the three major concerns at the time of the, the 1232. And pay, pay attention that at that time, the traditionalists, I call them traditionalists, but what I mean is the ones who are fighting philosophy, they're fighting a complete ban. They're saying, we want the whole concept of philosophy to be totally banned. And the Hachamim and Languedoc at the time, as a result of this, they put Rav Shlomo ben Abraham, the Rashba of Montpellier, they put him in Cherem. And the Radak of David Kimchi, the famous, uh, famous uh, expert in grammar, um, and many other works on the Torah, he strongly defended the Rambam at the time. And in fact, he writes that there is no one around me who I feel I'm able to share my understanding of the Rambam with me. I feel lonely, writes the Radak. And no one understands the Rambam like I do. In any case, this whole controversy ends very badly. As we know, the Rambam's books are burnt. And later on, things get a bit better. And certain hachamim who were involved in this ban of his books apologize. And okay, that's one controversy that's important to recognize for the context of the Teshuvah. But the controversy which we're dealing with this evening is the turn of the 14th century. And very interestingly, this is a different type of controversy. As we explained in the 1230s, the mahloke, the argument was whether to ban philosophy completely or not. Only 70 years have passed. And even those who are trying to ban recognize they can't ban completely. That's out of the question. These 70 years have proved so, so important that Languedocian culture, you just cannot talk about banning philosophy totally. What is happening though is is the extent of study of philosophy. So even those who are against the study of philosophy are not uh, promoting a complete ban. What they are promoting, though, is a limit, especially amongst the youth who lack the intellectual and spiritual maturity to deal with challenges, philosophical challenges to the tradition of the Torah. The main problem, again, which comes over and over again during the letters in this period, is the extreme allegorization of Torah. What the what those who are promoting a ban against Languedoc are arguing is that the Hachamim in Languedoc have no... They've, they've lost the sanctity of the literal text of the Torah. Everything becomes an allegory. And... Also, 
this synthesis of philosophy, Greek wisdom, and Torah, is this something appropriate for the younger generation or not? Now, again, remember, no one is coming and arguing that philosophy should be banned totally. That's out of the question. That's a development since 70 years ago. The question is, is who should be studying the philosophy? Just give me one second. I have to excuse myself. Just one moment, please. I usually say hello to everybody who's here, and there's more people that have joined that I haven't said hello to. So, hello. It's very important that everybody gets a hello when they arrive. So thank you all for being here. I'm sure the Rav will be back any minute. Can you tell me what is the title of today's um, Shiur? What is what is the title? Okay. Um, good question. The worldly knowledge and the well, Torah, the, the role of Torah, Torah and Mada, Torah and Mada, or Torah and Hashkafa. You could say that. It's about it's about you know what what our approach to worldly knowledge should be. Anyway, I'm really sorry about that. It's just it's come back to. You. I'm sorry I have to take that. Okay. So now comes along someone called Abba Mari. And Abamari is from a place called Lunel. Lunel is just outside of Montpellier, which is why sometimes you'll hear him being referred to as Abamari of Montpellier. It's basically the same place. Abamari is also called uh, the Yarchi. The Yarchi meaning in Hebrew, Yareach is the moon. Lunel is, uh, is the moon, right? The lunar calendar. And so he's called the Astruk of, of, uh, of Lunel. So it comes on Abamari, and he, which instigated this whole controversy, he turns to the Rashba. The Rashba I'm talking about now isn't the Rashba I mentioned earlier on. This is Abshlomo ben Abraham Aderet, different, different Rashba. This is the, the main Rashba. When you hear the word Rashba, this is the Rashba we're talking about. Where's the Rashba? The Rashba is in. Um, is in Barcelona. Let's just bring up the map again. So it's really important that you appreciate the geography here. So Rashba is here in Catalonia, in Barcelona. So he's in northern Spain. And Abamari, who's himself, as we said, he is in Montpellier. Now, I appreciate that some of our attendees this evening are not from Europe, and so may not fully appreciate the uh, south of France. So I just want to show you quickly where everything is on the maps. Have a look here, south of France. So we have, as I said, we have Barcelona here, Catalonia. And then we have Montpellier over here. Can you see Montpellier here? Okay, you've got Toulouse here. You have Narbonne here, Marseille here. 
and Peperian, which is where the Meiri is, which we're going to come back to later. Um, and also Bezier. Where is Bezier? Here it is, over here. Okay, and Hasamim, great Rishonim, were living in all of these places. Montpellier and Bezier in Narbonne, all living in these places. And all of this area is called Languedoc. But the Rashba is outside of Languedoc. Rashba is in northern Spain. And yet, Abamari, who himself is living in Montpellier, living in uh, Languedoc, he turns to the Rashba, who was the greatest halachist of the time, on guidance on what to do about these allegorical interpretations of the Torah, which he saw as being heretical. And all these communications between Abamari and all the people he was writing to, he wrote down in a book called Minchat Kena'ot, which literally means the, the, the offering of zealousy, um, which is available on Tzara Chochma, 127 letters in this, uh, in this book. Now, if Abamari is in southern France, in Languedoc, why is he turning to Rashba in northern Spain for his guidance and his advice? Hasn't he got enough Chachamim in Montpellier, in, uh, in Narbonne, right? What's going on? So clearly, he didn't have much support in Languedoc. And he had to turn to people like the Rashba um, for, their, for their support. Now, you may be thinking at this point, look, Abba Mari seems to be this person who is an anti-rationalist, he's an anti-Maimonidean, he hates philosophy, and he's concerned about all this philosophy going on in Languedoc. Nothing is further from the truth. Abba Mari himself acknowledged that the Moren Nebuchim, the guide to the perfection of the Rambam, is the authoritative expression of the Torah's inner philosophical meaning. The Rambam famously writes in Hilchot Mada that when the Gemara says certain things aren't to be expanded upon in public, they are Maaseh Merkava and Maaseh Bereshit, the works of the chariot and the works of the creation. What are these Maaseh Merkava and Maaseh Bereshit? The Rambam famously says that Maaseh Merkava is philosophy and theology, and Maaseh Bereshit are the sciences. And Rambam said, the more you investigate philosophy, the more you investigate science, the greater your appreciation of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Meiri held, sorry, not the Meiri, Abamari held exactly the same. Abamari writes in one of his letters that all of these philosophies and these sciences were all known to the Hachamim of yesteryear. And it was forgotten when we were exiled from our land, but some of these secrets were transmitted to the nations, such as the Greek nations, and um, they were transmitted later back in into the Jewish tradition. So Abamari is not an anti-Maimonidean. He himself fully supports Rambam. He himself understands that science and philosophy is an integral part of appreciating Akadosh Baruch Hu and the world he's created us. This is very different to the Rashba. Remember, the Rashba is living in north of Spain. And for him, he sees no correlation between philosophy 
and Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava. There's no concept of synthesis of science and Torah. What for Ashba is Maaseh Merkava? For the Rashba, Maaseh Merkava is the study of Kabbalah. And this is why this alliance between Rashba and Abamari is extremely surprising. It's, it's unbelievable to a certain extent. Because Abamari is a moderate Rambam, is a Maimonidea. He's living in Languedoc. He appreciates philosophy, he appreciates science. Rashba is a towering halachist. Okay, but he's living in Catalonia, where there they're all influenced by Kabbalah. And Abamari only turns to Rashba because he has uh, failed to be able to, to find any support for his position in Languedoc. And so in his frustration, he turns outside of his community to someone Abamari believes would have a sympathetic ear. And amusingly, in one of the letters of Abamari to the Rashba, Abamari starts saying, look, uh, uh, it's unbelievable, he writes to the Rashba, I'm shocked. There are people preaching the secrets of the chariot, the secrets of philosophy in public to the initiated. You know the Rashba's response to Abamari? Rashba's response is, I don't think he's revealing any secrets. Yeah? Philosophy isn't any of the secrets of the Torah. So, yeah, he's wasting his time, but he's not revealing any secrets. The Rashba didn't appreciate this concept of philosophy and science being the secrets of the Torah. Nonetheless, they form this alliance. When you have a goal, you often join forces with people you don't necessarily share the same view with. And so Abamari and Rashba form this alliance and they're corresponding regularly. So how did Abamari differ from all the other Languedocian Hakamim? Abamari believed that philosophy and science were part of Torah, but they need to be restricted to the great Hakamim. Only those who have you know, perfect knowledge of Torah, those who are an appropriate age, those who are able to guard themselves against the dangers of philosophy. Abamari argues that those who engage with philosophy before they had a full understanding of the Torah and a full appreciation of the Hachamim, they ended up deviating from the true meaning of the Torah and they, and they ended up uh, allegorizing the Torah and rejecting miracles and ending up being lax with observance of the mitzvot. Again, the very same three um, accusations which we saw in the early 13th century come back again. And again, it's tefillin being quoted, that for some reason the philosophers are lax in tefillin. And again, this idea of allegorizing the Torah, Abamari talks about these hachamim who make Abraham and Sarah into non-literal figures. They just... Homer and Surah just form an image and they take all the stories of the Torah and allegorize them. Similarly, these Hachamim, Abamari accuses, they deny miracles. Right? So the Gemara tells us in Shabbat that the tablets of stone, the Luchot Evan, were engraved completely. And there are two letters, the Mem and the Samach, which if you look, think of the letters Mem and Samach, they have, uh, they, they have a space in between them. And there was one Chacham of Languedoc who said that this can't be literal. It must be there was some technique to be able to keep them in place. The Gemara says it was a miracle. But he said, you know, there must have been some technique to keep it in place. And on this, the Abamari was extremely angry about. And so he writes to the Rashba, 
And Rajba initially is very reluctant to intervene. He believes it's beyond his jurisdiction, but he encourages Abamari to obtain local support in Languedoc. This doesn't work. So Rajba writes a letter signed by the Hachami of Barcelona. He asks the Hachami of Montpellier to make a cherem to ban the study of these philosophical works until the age of 30. If they do so, says the Rashba, I'll do the same with my Beddin of Barcelona and will have full force for this. Abamari reads this letter of the Rashba in public in 1303. No one pays attention to it. It's ignored. So matters are left for a, certain, for a period of time. Things progress over the next two years and Abamari manages to secure the support of his uncle, Colonimus Ben Todros of Narbonne. And he was a great hacham of Narbonne. And when Rashba hears that he's involved, he's willing to get more involved. And things develop. And by the time we get to July 1305, the Rashba and 33 hachamim of Barcelona issue a ban on the study of philosophy for anyone and sciences for anyone under the age of 25. It's moved from 30 now. Obviously, the Rashba saw that 30 is too much for Languedoc to accept. So now it's moved down to 25. Rashba issues a ban, and he sends with this ban two letters. One letter, he urges the Languedoc, the Hachamim, to follow and to do the same. And in the second letter, he directly ex excommunicates all these alleged uh, allegorists of Languedoc. And one person who he really vents his anger against is Levi ben Chaim. He writes very sharp things against. Um, and he says, these people who are allegorizing the Torah need to be put in ban. I'm not, not going to go through the whole cherem of the Rashba. I'll quickly show you um, the cherem of the Rashba. Here it is. I hope you can all see it. He writes here. We've, we've, we've uh, decreed and accepted upon ourselves and all our descendants that we're not going to study any of the Greek books which they've, which they've composed. For now, until 50 years, until he's 25 years, and then no one is allowed to teach his children these things until they're 25 years old. That's what the Rashba bans. And the Hachamim of Montpellier are furious with this. They're so furious that they make a counterban. And they say, anyone who listens to this and tries to prevent his children under 25 from learning philosophy and science, he should be put in harem. Counterban. Not just that, they put Abamari in harem for causing trouble and Abamari is in Languedoc now, and he's in Kherem. With all his society, all his culture, all his friends there, he's in Kherem. So what does Abamari do? He puts a counterban on those banning him. Right? He, he invokes the Gemara, which says that anyone who puts someone in Kherem without good cause, he himself should be put in Kherem. Abamari says to the Hachari of Montpellier, you're putting me in the ban for no good reason. I'm just doing the will of Hashem. I'm a zealot for the word of God. Therefore, I'm putting you in the ban for putting me under the ban. That's 
called the Adaraba, the on the contrary band. At this point, the Me'iri steps in. The Me'iri is not in Montpellier. He's in, Pe 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 as we said earlier, he's in Pepriyan, as I showed you on the map. And he is the greatest halachic authority of Languedoc. He's kept quiet until now, but now he steps in, and in a very flowery and beautiful letter to the Abamari, he expresses his concerns with everything that's happened over the last few years. So that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of this evening. We're going to see his Teshuvah. We're going to go through the main points and try to draw out some lessons relevant to us today. So, can everyone see the Teshuvah? This is what we're going to be focusing on. Yeah, can we all see this? Good. Okay. Teshuvah l'Rabbeinu. This is a response to Abamari. With regards to the cherem which Abamari put on the Chachamim of Montpellier, and with regards to studying other uh, sciences and philosophies. So, as always, when you want to disagree with someone and criticize someone, the first thing you do is praise them. Right? That's the only way people are going to pay attention to you. So, the first paragraph, the Meiri strongly praises Abamari. Yamim Rabim Shimacha. We've heard about you for many months. You've shown your greatest and your mighty arm to ban the concept of the sermon. So what he's saying in the Meiri to Abamari is that, look, what you've, Abamari, what he wanted to do is, is he had a problem with this misapplication of allegory and the way it was being publicized to everyone. And Meiri agrees to Abamari. You're 100% right. I'm so happy, he says, that you have taken a step and been courageous to ban these sermonizers who get up and start talking all of their stuff to the public who don't understand anything and they misinterpret it and and misallegorize the Torah. That's good, and I'm happy with that, says the Meiri. He continues, We were delighted as if we found great treasure. We praised you. We encouraged this. Through you, God will give respite to our sadness. Good things happen to good people. We, we waited the day which your thoughts will come to fruition. We were delighted with you. Your love is greater than the love of wine, and the upright praise you. So all in all, a fantastic start. You're expecting a, a great correspondence here between Meiri uh, and Abamari, right? He's telling him, fantastic what you've done. You know, you're, you're, you're bringing an end to these people who are getting up, allegorizing the Torah in public to the uninitiated. Fantastic what you're doing. But then continues the Miri. Miri's writing this at the end of 1305, after the ban of the Rashba, a few months after. Continues the Miri. A few months passed. We're still talking in your praises. And we're told. When what you proposed didn't happen immediately, you, the, 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 you made an earthquake. 
ולפני רבנו הרב הלוכיח יסדתא. You brought this dispute in front of the רבנו הרב. Who's רבנו הרב? This is the רשב"א. למשפט שמתא לתת לחוכמה לבזזים ולומדה למחיתה. You have brought the philosophy into disrepute and its learners into shame. Says Meiri Tabamari, apparently, since you know, what, what you tried to do didn't happen, you took this dispute out of Languedoc and you went to the Rashba. Now the Rashba, the Meiri agrees with, he calls him Rabenu Harav. And in fact, look at the next paragraph, how much kavod the Meiri gives to the Rashba. Despite the fact that the Rashba is a father for us all, because of his perfection, don't open his mouth to curb against the Rashba. So great kavod is designating to the Rashba. Nonetheless, he says, you need to appreciate that with these types of things, not everyone has the same opinion. Look at this next sentence then. The North Spanish, of Catalonia and of Aragon, they have chosen to go after the Kabbalah. The majority of the philosophical concepts by them are, are demonic to them. They are injurious angels in their perspective. Says the Meiri to, to, to Abamari, look, I know you've got a problem and we need to deal with it, but why did you take it to the Rashba? The Rashba is from a totally different school of thought. You know, they've chosen the Kabbalistic way. They don't appreciate philosophy. You, Abamari, do. You're my monodian. You are, uh, you understand the more. You appreciate philosophy. So why have you taken this to the Rashba, despite the Rashba being a great halachic authority, but for philosophy, you can't take his opinion. For them, philosophy is, is demonic. He's quoting a pasuk in, in Ishaya, he's saying, look, are there no doctors here? Why did you have to take this problem out of our context of Languedoc, out of Montpellier, out of Pepperyan, out of Narbonne, and go and take it to the Rashba, was a whole different school of thought. That's wrong. Then continues the Meiri, how he came to know about it. And he explains there was a wedding going on. I'm not going to translate word for word because there's lots to get through, and I want to focus on the main part. He says there was a wedding of someone called Don Shmuel Natan, which happened in Pepperyan. And at this time, um, they brought the letters of your correspondence to, to me during this wedding. The person who brought it to me was someone called Itzhak de Lattes. Lattes is a place in, in Languedoc, and he, brought, he brings these letters to me, and he asked me my, my opinion. What's my opinion about what all, all this is going on? Because Itzhak de Lattes says, look, I've heard all the other hachamim are very upset about this. Right, he writes in Hahar, the honorable people of the mountain. Montpellier is a city on, on, uh, built on two, two mountains. So he's talking about Hachamim of Montpellier. They're talking about this, and they're very upset with all of this. And he asked my opinion. And I said, Harali Gamken, I'm also extremely angry about this. And it's wondrous in my eyes 
לפי נועם מידותיך ורוחב מוסריך. According to the, you know, you are a nice person, oh, I understand. But what you've decided to do is להבאיש ריב כברת ארץ במהלך עשרה ימים? You've decided to bring out a bad name about an area, the length of 10 days. Languedoc apparently took 10 days to traverse. מודעת ביחס, it's known for its lineage, ואושר its wealth, וחוכמה its wisdom, ובכל מיני מעלן, all the sciences and philosophies, לפני מעלת הבן הרב, You've decided to give us a bad name of all the hachamim of Languedoc in front of the Rashba, Asher Ushakul Etzelu Kishimi Bo, who is comparable to us like 600,000 people. And you should know, says the Meiri Tavamari, you should know, if this wasn't the Rashba who you had written to, this would have been the start of a huge fight. Only because you're writing to the Rashba, you know, we have a bit of respect for the Rashba, and therefore we, they didn't fight back like they would have wanted to. Anyone else would have had a big fight. If you've got a problem, tell us about it. Why did you bring it to the Rashba? And Amar says the Meiri, when I told this, my response to Rabbi Yitzchak of Latest, he told me, also the Hachami of Montpelier are very upset about this. What's the Rashba? Why is he, you know, it's not his jurisdiction. Why is he getting involved in this? Says uh, the Meiri back to the Rabbi Yitzchak Now, Meiri then makes reference back to the first controversy. And he says, let's remind ourselves of the first controversy of the 1230s, where, who can, he says, who can comprehend the damage, the pain, the embarrassment that came out from the controversy? We are very concerned here about you stoking the fire and causing, making fights here. And we received a letter from Barcelona where they've told us that the Rashba and his community have put in the ban anyone who decides to learn philosophy or the natural sciences less than 25 years. We've also been told, says the Meiri, that once one of the Hachamim died, apparently they found in his manuscript certain allegations allegoric interpretations of the Torah. For example, Abraham and Sarah, they, um, they hint, they're an allegory towards Chomer v'tzurah, form and image. And the 12 Shvatim, the 12 tribes, are a remez, they're a hint to the 12 uh, constellations. And apparently we're told that Yuhab Amari sent this to the Rashba as an example to show, to show the Rashba how the Chachami of Languedoc All they do is allegorize the Torah and they take the Torah out of its literal sense. Says, Abama, says the Meiri to Abamari, look, you are a great person, you are a cedar tree. You went and told the Rashba about these things and you didn't tell him about the main problem. The main problem which we're suffering from here in Languedoc is the problem of these people, these sermonizers, he calls them the Meiri. The sermonizers who get up and start to preach and allegorize the Torah without any context. But you, you, know, you went in to tell him to, 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 to ban the philosophy and to ban these things. That, that's, you, you've missed the point here. You've gone and told him about the minor things, about the people studying philosophy and the sciences, and, gone and, and forgotten to tell him about the real problem. 
And then he says, They've also added iniquity, saying, From the day that philosophy entered Languedoc, in Aragon, in Catalonia, they're, they're saying about us that from once philosophy entered Languedoc in the uh, 12th century, then piousness, the fear of sin was forgotten. There isn't apparently one philosopher in Languedoc who fears God. Says the Miri, You know very well that there is God in Languedoc. Yes, yes, there are many God-fearing people tonight. Stretch out your hand, I'll show you all of them. Mary's not happy at all with Abamar, is he? He's saying, look, you know, you've missed the point here. And you're giving us a bad name. You appreciate the culture which we live in. You appreciate the philosophy in the context of, of, of our communities. And you know that there are Chachamim. You know there are God-fearing people. Why are you giving us a bad name in front of the Rashba, who's, in, who's away from us, doesn't know what's going on here? Now the Me'iri turns to talk about how important philosophy is and the sciences. Philosophy is so important in our eyes. There is so much to gain in its principles and its details. Everything the Chachamim wrote about it. Ah, you'll tell me sometimes here or there there's something which is incorrect. Okay. So when I see something which I don't fully understand, which seems to contradict the Torah, I will attribute that to a lack of my understanding. And now, look how humble the Meiri is. The Meiri is the greatest halachist of Languedoc. He's saying, when I don't understand something philosophical, something scientific, I'll say, look, I don't have the ability to understand it. There are greater people than me who do understand it. And I'll go to try to pluck out a rose from the thorns. I'm not going to ban, I'm not going to leave a whole book because of a few bad things in it. Let me pluck out the good things. Let me take out the important philosophical and scientific premises and I'll throw away the things which are contrary to the Torah. And you know, says the Mary, sometimes after you really analyze what they write and you try to give them the benefit of the doubt and be a bit compassionate to what they've written, you actually see that there's a lot of depth to it. Okay, then the Miri says something really important. This is so important. And I think Rabbi Sachs exemplifies this next paragraph. We saw the tributes coming out after Rabbi Sachs passed away, especially from, the, uh, uh, from uh, Prince Charles. He says, This is so important. It's an honor for a nation. When there are a few people, even if they're little, who are philosophically trained, if you have a nation who are who are uh, do not have any philosophical people within themselves, then people are going to say, "Am petit v'sacha." This is a foolish nation. Instead of saying about us, "Am chacham benavon tells us in Parshat Devarim that the people around you will be so impressed by your knowledge they'll say. Wow, what a great and, and amazing nation this is. And instead, because we are not well versed in the contemporary sciences and philosophy, people are going to say we're foolish people. 
And if you're going to tell me there are one or two people who, you know, have uh, deviated and from their um, uh, immersion in philosophy, they have stumbled and deviated from the path, fine. He himself should be excommunicated. But why should we prevent the rest of philosophy being studied? And then he brings a beautiful example. And this is doing on purpose. Because Abamarius turned to the Rashbah, who for the Rashbah, Kabbalah is the greatest. Says Abamari, says Mirit Abamari, you know, the Gemara tells us the story of the four who entered, who entered the orchard. The orchard is the wisdom, esoteric wisdom of the Kabbalah. And the Gemara tells us only one left the Shalom, only one left in peace. Everyone else had problems. So according to your logic, Abamari, says Miri, okay, if there are people who are deviating from the Torah because of their study of philosophy and science, then we should, and therefore we should lock, we close all of philosophy and science, we should also close all of Kabbalah because we know there are people who study Kabbalah and come out with wrong interpretations of God. So we should also close Kabbalah. You've never heard of that. And you know very well, says Meiri, you know of the great hachamim in our area who are experts in all of the Talmud and the Mishnah. Have you not heard of Rav Shmuel Shekiel who was gifted and crowned with the knowledge of all disciplines? Have you not heard of Rav Gerushom from Bezier who understood all the treasures of wisdom? And yet was a great Talmudist and a great Alachist. There are many more examples I can give you who know the Talmud to perfection. They learn it day in, day out. And they add novel interpretations to the Torah. Nonetheless, they are bekiim They are fully comprehensive. They fully understand all of the different science and, and scientific and philosophical investigations. Did you ever hear of any of these hachamim who said something wrong? You've taken one or two or three examples and built from them a whole philosophy that these people are studying too young. Okay. And then he says, again, we're running out of time. We're going to pick out the main points here. We may go slightly over time. I'm sorry. I know I'm, I'm, I'm normally very particular to finish on time. But this is such a beautiful teshuvah, and it's worthwhile. If you're all with me, feel free to leave if you need to leave at 9.30, but it's worthwhile staying on to seeing the rest of this. Continues the Mary, says, look, you know very well that there are certain passages in the Gemara which cannot be understood with a good, well-grounded understanding of the sciences. When I, says the Mary, when I came to study Masechet Sukkah, and it talks there about the Sukkah, the size of an uh, the size of an oven, and there's a whole bunch, there's a whole load of geometry there and mathematics, and the other sugyot relating to exact measurements of finger breadths. I understood this all through geometry. one of my friends, who explained this all to me, who 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 from a young age had studied. The sciences had studied geometry until he became more immersed in, in Gemara. And also says Mary, you won't understand anything of the Rambam on Kiddush HaKodesh. And the Rambam has very deep works on the astronomy of how to sanctify the moon. 
You won't understand any of this without basic understanding of the sciences. That's part one of the teshuvah. For one of the teshuvah, Mary is telling the uh, Abamari, you made a big mistake to give us a bad name. You know, I appreciate you have concerns about what's going on. We can deal with those concerns, but why make an outright ban on, on all of Chokmah because of your concerns? It's not the right thing to do. You've taken the wrong approach. And the next part, the Me'iri deals with the fact that they've um, put the limit up to 25 years old. And he says, look, this idea of saying that philosophy can't be studied until, until you're 25 is a very bad idea. And I'm going to give you some reasons, says Amiri, why it's a bad idea. Let's have a look at this next part. The time frame of until 25 years, which the Rashba decided to ban, this may be correct according to his place, but with all the honor for him, we cannot accept this. I'll put the reasons before you. You choose. So Miriam is saying an important point. saying, look, you have to understand these things cannot, you cannot issue a worldwide ban on certain kinds of things. You have to take into account the context of a society. The Rashba is making a ban on studying philosophy less than 25. That may be well and good for his place in Catalonia. And I've got no qualms with that. But he doesn't know our area. And we cannot accept something like that for a number of reasons. Number one, he says, is that human beings are diverse. You cannot limit every person in Languedoc not to study the philosophy till 25. It's just not sim it's simply not possible. Number two is, he says, look, we have, it's very difficult financially where we live. If you're going to prevent a person from being able to study in his young years, when he's got more time on his hands, then by the time he reaches 25, he's got a wife, he's got the, the livelihood to make, a parnasai, difficult. He's not going to be able to engage, and therefore these things are going to be forgotten. Remember, Meiri is appealing to Abamari, who appreciates that philosophy is an integral part of the Torah. Meiri appreciates this, and so does Abamari. And therefore, we were saying, look, you know this very well, that like according to the Rambam, philosophy and science is an integral part of the Torah. If we don't allow them to learn till 25, by that time, they're too busy with their lives. They're not going to be able to study. Number three, he says, is, is that by the time they reach that age, you know, they, they may not always have a teacher ready to teach them. Under 25, you may find a person ready to teach you, but then he can't teach you because I'm less than 25. I'm not allowed to study. And then he comes to the fourth point, and he says, this is ridiculous what's going on. He says, you just make no sense. You're telling me that we're banning the study of philosophy and the sciences. But you yourself appreciate how great the Rambam is. Please, in your kindness, please explain to me. How on earth will we understand the 25 introductions in the book of the Moreh in the second section, where the fundamentals of the Torah are found in the Rambam, where he, where he elucidates on all this Greek and Arabic philosophy, where he talks about the existence of God, the incorporeality of God, the simplicity, the unity of God. 
they're all taken from the natural sciences. So you're telling me, okay, don't study, I'm banning the philosophy, right? But how are we going to be able to study the Moray? And of course, Meiri appreciates, Abamari appreciates that the Moray is a standard study for that time. That's the staple diet, you know. We have, <laughs> imagine today someone uh, accusing a rabbi of, of, uh, of you know, teaching too much philosophy. And the rabbi responding by saying, um, but we need to understand the basics of philosophy. Uh, that's exactly what Meiri is telling Abamari. You want to ban the philosophy of the under 25s, but you know how important philosophy is. And you can't understand the Morene Bukhim without. And the Morene Bukhim is a staple diet of our, of our education. How are we going to understand it? And then he says, the thing, it all ends up being a joke because there are many books written by rabbis which are purely Greek philosophy. So what are you going to say? Ah, the Rashba only banned work, Greek and Arabic works in the vernacular. But um, in Hebrew is fine. It, just, it doesn't make any sense. So that's his fourth problem. His fifth problem, he says, is and this is a really important point, which I, I wish Chachamim of our time would take into account. He says there's no point banning things which people are going to keep to. When you ban things which people are just unable to accept, then it just makes a mockery of the Chachamim. I remember being in the presence of one Haredi, a very great Haredi person, and he was talking about in, the internet. In Haredi circles, we know some people are very apprehensive of the internet. And he was asked by someone, how come he didn't come out stronger against the internet? He's about 55 years old, this person. He said, look, the great uh, Haredi Rabbanim in, 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 uh, in America, Bushwal Kamenetsky, Matisal Salomon, they all, all came out with bans against the internet. Why have you not come out stronger? And what he said, I, I really liked, I'll never forget. He said, look, they're in their 80s. I'm 55 years old. They are able to ban things like the internet, which, you know, for the next few years of their life, whilst they're still alive, okay, maybe the majority of Haredi society will, will be able to get through their lives without the internet. I'm 55 years old. Yeah? In 30 years' time, everyone's going to be using the internet. You, I can't make a mockery of myself by banning something which people are going to end up using. It just takes away from all the gravitas of the rabbinate. Says the Meiri, Babamari, you have to appreciate within the next seven to ten years, People are thirsty for this kind of study. You ban it from them, but they're going to end up saying, look, okay, you know, some rabbis prohibited it, some rabbis allowed it, and the whole thing becomes a joke. Then the Miri says, look, in the first controversy, they banned all the Rambam's works, didn't they? They said, Northern France rabbis, they said, no one can study the works of the Rambam. But now everyone's learning the Rambam. What happened? You're telling me that they annulled the ban? I never heard of that. So you have the same problem. Rabbis making bans, and then no one keeping to them. Bans in the 1230s, no one to study the works of the Rambam. And by, by the end of the 13th century, everyone's studying the Rambam. So what have we gained by making these bans? You make a ban on the, on the 25, but then they're going to end up studying these things. And then finally he says, look, by focusing on banning under 25s and learning philosophy and the sciences, you've taken away the real, you, you've taken your attention away from the real problem. You know what the real problem is? 
The real problem are these people who are not fully versed in philosophy and science. All they've learned to write, this is when I saw the sentence, I, you know, I burst out laughing. He says, all they know, they don't know anything. All they know is the Morenevuchim, the Malmadatal Midim of Yaakov Anatoly, and the commentary in Kohelet by Shmuel Ibn Tibon. That's all they know, right? You know, I wish today's Jewry would know Moren uh, and these kinds of things. But he says, these sermonizers, they get up, they just read the Moren and then they make their own comparisons, which are very bad comparisons. And they get up and they allegorize the Torah, and this causes the real harm. And by just making a general ban on all those who are under 25, you've taken away the real focus on those people who are misinterpreting, really misinterpreting the Torah. And he says, you should have put more, you should have paid more attention to that. Had you done that, I would have supported you. Yes, they can continue sermonizing their kinds of stuff, their stories in Mishlein, Proverbs, and Shiri, let them continue talking about that. But we should be banning these people from talking about the depth of the Torah, the, the Midrashim, which are uh, got to do with the, the, the basics of creation and the, the, the works of the chariots of philosophy and science. These are the things we should be preventing them from talking about. But you have now lost this opportunity. People are talking about the ban of the under-25s, and you've lost this opportunity. In the final paragraph, Namiri says to um, Abamari, it was wrong what you did to issue a counter-ban on those who banned you. He says, Lama You shouldn't have made this counter-ban. You should have just, you know, they keep to their belief, you keep to your belief, you think that People shouldn't be studying philosophy. They think that they should. Should have just kept quiet. It doesn't help all of this. This just ends up to be a lag vakeles. This ends up to being a mockery for everyone. And this was written. There's so many things to take away from this teshuvah. So many things. But I appreciate it. this was written 700 years ago. And just look what the Miri writes. When there is this internal fighting. When one camp is banning another camp, and the other camp is banning that camp, none of this helps. This just causes, for the lay people, this just causes a mockery of Torah. And how many times in our lifetimes, I'm talking about, in our lifetimes, how many times have we seen this? Unfortunately, these bans and these proclamations about people uh, just end up making a mockery of the Torah. And so what we have here is the Meiri upfront confronting Abamari. To summarize, Abamari is living in Languedoc in a culture immersed in philosophy and science. He gets no one to support him to ban philosophy and science. He's very concerned that people are paying too much attention to allegorizing the Torah and, and the philosophy of the Torah. Yes, these things are important. Abamari concedes, but not from, from such a young age. He turns to Rashba for support. Rashba gives him the support from Barcelona and, and makes the ban. And the Eri representing like representing Languedocian jury comes out in full force against this and says, You made a big mistake. You cannot recognize uh, you know, what, what we're about. You can't get someone from a rabbi outside of our area to be able to issue a verdict. And this is why we always need to be so careful. The Mishnah Prakavot tells us, Rabbis, be careful with your words. If you're in a different country, don't get involved in the controversy of a country which you are foreign 
to its culture. You are foreign to its context. These things never went out, end up working, right? People who are on the site, people who are there, they need to deal with these things. It doesn't help when, uh, when people get involved from outside. And unfortunately, these things happen over and over and over again, and people fail to learn the lessons of the Me'iri. And that's one thing we see. The second thing we see is the importance, both Me'iri and Abamari attribute to the study of philosophy and science. And for them, these things are an integral part of the Torah. Yes, there's a dispute on what age you should be when doing these things, but for both of them, these are things which are indivisible from the study of the Torah and contribute greatly to our understanding of the Torah. How did this all end? Um, unfortunately, it ended with the expulsion of the Jews just a year later from France. So this all came to an end. This whole, uh, maybe this fighting would have continued for a bit more. But as always, when we fight internally and there's an external enemy, then we forget our internal tensions and we focus on the external tensions. King, King Philip IV in 1306 drives out the Jews from southern France. And so all of this is forgotten and both camps live to fight another day. And these camps have continued to fight throughout the generations. But I believe that this camp of the Me'iri, this camp of Abamari has been neglected, has been forgotten, right? Today, it's almost strange that you find a hacham who's well-versed in philosophy, who's well-versed as, a, science, as a, a scientist. You know, these things are almost contradictory today. Well, you're gonna, he's a, oh, he's a scientist, but he's a rabbi. How's that possible? Well, he's a professor, he's a mathematician. How's that possible? It doesn't go together. You have to understand, and I hope you've seen this, the vast majority of the hachamim living in southern France, in Languedoc and in Andalusia, for them, not only was it not a, contra a contradiction, in fact, they were an integral part of living a life committed to Torah. An integral part of living a life committed to Torah was appreciating the world, seeing the author of the world, seeing HaKadosh Baruch Hu, studying the science, studying the philosophy, understanding God in our lives. And that's why they place such an emphasis on this and why they just couldn't accept the Rashba banning them from studying these things until the age of 25. Look, we've gone over time. I hope you've enjoyed. I'm, I'm here. Uh, if anyone has any questions to ask, to discuss, uh, any points you want to uh, clarify, anything you don't understand, um, please feel free to um, come in now or to add anything. Uh, thank you so, so much for that. Um, fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. I'm so glad that you were able to elucidate on the Teshuvah for us all. I'm going to go to the uh, audience just for a few minutes because I know we've gone over time, Rav, and I know you probably want to go to bed. Um, you've probably got learning to do tonight. But uh, here we've got a hand up by Jamal. Uh, yeah, um, a question. Um, I, and I've asked this question before, but I'm interested, Rabbi Kada, in your, in your um, opinion to the, to the question. So in the past, it makes sense somewhat that there's a disconnect between implementing newer information with the per person who produces the information because they didn't receive information so quickly. So it would make sense in the past that maybe a new idea didn't take root until later. And we see that pretty often. But nowadays we have such instant access to information. What do you think prevents the implementation um, of newer information in our current time when information is received so quickly? That's an interesting question. And I'll say this. 
people don't like change. And the further we move on in time, the more fossilized things become, unfortunately. And the more fossilized something becomes, the harder it is to change it. And look, remember, we're talking about the 1300s, 1200s, 1100s. This is only a few hundred years after the Talmud's been written. People are much freer to express their views, much freer to reinterpret things. Now we are seven, 800 years on from this. And people just feel that the way you know, their grandfathers lived is the way that, uh, uh, you know, that's the way Judaism has been there for the entire life. They don't recognize there's been a whole evolution of Torah, a whole evolution of the interpretation of the Torah. And the more we go down the line, the more people become rooted in their opinions and just failing to see the other side. And yes, we have uh, lots of information today, but unfortunately people, as we know, it's an echo room. You know, people are stuck in their own... Uh, their own societies, their own groups, and they're unwilling to hear anyone else who shares a different opinion. So yes, it's got the positive and disadvantages of today's society. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Jamal, for the question. Flora, I see you've got your digital hand up. You're muted. Sorry, you're muted. No, it won't go. I have a problem. Has I, have I unmuted? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, sir. No, Rabbi Kader, thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating. I'm thinking of um, Alicia Benabouya. I'm teaching Prokei Avot, and I went a little bit into his life, you know. And he's, you know, sort of started off with Greek and all this foreign philosophy and whatever else. Obviously, I'm not, it's not so much a question. I'm just trying to share it with you. It's a very, very sad story because he was a great hacham, he was a great man, and uh, Obviously, he was led astray. He was, he, I think the ban was obviously not for me to think, but of course, I'm not in any way criticizing the, the ban on him. He became Acher, as we all know. It's just that I don't know how he couldn't synthesize the two together. I don't know where he went wrong. And, and, and I know it was obviously much earlier on. He was one of the ones who, who entered Pardes and uh, became Acher. You know, uh, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Well, Look, I don't have much to add up when the Gemara says that he uh, he made a, he made a big mistake in understanding the the unity of God, mm. um, and Meiri uses that exactly to say, look, nonetheless, nobody ever suggested that we should uh, ban Kabbalah totally. Absolutely. So, yeah. so why should we ban philosophy totally or science totally? Because people have uh, one or two people have been misguided by it. That's I think what he's comparing to to it. Um, mm. So there's a question here in the in the in the chat. Firstly, uh, the copy of the Iris Teshuva. Sin, are you able to upload that onto the? Yes, yes. Onto, Anybody onto wants it? Yeah, yeah, I can put it in the chat. If anyone wants it, they can just email. I'll if you want to read more about all of this, excellent book by Greg Stern, Philosophy and Rabbinic Culture. Um, maybe you can put a link in the in the chat box. Sinna, uh, Philosophy and Rabbinic Culture, excellent book which goes through all of this. All right, Phillips asks, were the rabbis you mentioned who negated Tiflin stopping to them altogether? Did they claim this was the Rambam? If so, how? So this, the funny thing about this controversy is that everyone is claiming the Rambam's on their side. <laughs> yeah, this is very different to the, the controversy in the 1300s, different to the 1230s. In the 1230, it's those against the Rambam and it's the supporters of the Rambam. Now it's moved on totally. Now everyone is quoting the Rambam as a support. The question is, how do we interpret the Rambam? So um, those they were not actually told who were the people who were not putting on tefillin. It's no chachamim 
are specifically accused of not doing so, but it's, it's, it's accused of as a general laxity in this mitzvah, that people, as a result of all these allegoric interpretations of the Torah, um, they are starting to say, okay, you know, I can connect to God through my own means. No one's, we're not actually told, at least I haven't, I haven't read the exact details of who this was. I think it was more the general population. But look, we've always had uh, people lax with Tefillin, unfortunately. Right? You, you think back to the Gemara, and the Gemara says that a person who doesn't fall on Tefillin is a poche said the gufa. Right? A very sharp statement, which is reserved for, for Tefillin, nothing really else. And it makes you wonder whether already in those times, people were lax in Tefillin. Right? You know, often when we find Chachamim coming out strongly against something, that's because it was lax in their times. So that may well be um, that this con you know, continued all the way through, and then this was a, a nice way to blame the allegorical uh, interpretations. Ah, oh, they're causing them to not wear Tefillin, which anyway wasn't happening. So, yeah. Thank you, Rav. And uh, one more question there. Avi Garson? No, I don't, I don't have a question. <laughs> I don't know. Simon and the Simon and Sandy. Simon said, What effect did the controversy on philosophy have on the reception of the Rambam Salachist and Talmudist? Were those who burned the Murray to learn the Mishnah Torah? So interesting, very interesting question, Simon. This is already all about the first controversy, but in short, is that the, during the Rambam's lifetime already, there are many people who are against the Mishnah Torah. In fact, if you haven't read the introduction to the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, I highly advise you to read it. A fascinating introduction. The Rambam there writes, actually, he says, I called my book the Mishneh Torah because it's the second Torah. That's all you need. All you need is the, is the Torah, the five books of Moshe, and my Mishneh Torah. The Rambam takes away any need to study Gemara. If you need to know any halakha, just learn the Torah and just learn the Rambam, Mishneh Torah, and you're fine. And many people have great issues with this. You know, how dare he talk like this? How dare he reduce the Talmud to just a bunch of laws. And so, yes, even in the lifetime of the Rambam himself, there were great issues with the Mishneh Torah. But as we know, the Rambam won out. And today there isn't a yeshiva in the world which won't study the Rambam. You know, you can't go to yeshiva without learning Rambam on a daily basis. Every sugya which you learn in, in today, you open the Rambam. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, that's a slightly different question. Um, I, I, I realize that there was the Mishneh Torah was controversial in its own right. What I'm wondering is whether the two controversies influenced one another. Whether the people no. who didn't like his philosophy, met, met, that made them less willing to... to, to not, not at all, not at all. Good question. Okay, sorry. So not at all in the second controversy? In the first controversy, yes. In the first controversy, because of his moreh, they wanted to ban all of his books. And that was the initial charem, by the way. Because of his heretical views, apparent heretical views in Mishneh Torah, uh, sorry, in Moreh Nebuchim, um, this means that this guy's a kofer and you can't learn anything from him. A lot of what we hear today as well, when one person says one thing wrong, then all the, all the Torah they've taught for years and years all suddenly goes out of the window. And this is what the Meiru was telling us this evening. He says, okay, you found one or two problems. So get rid of those, but why leave that person? Why leave all this Torah because of a few problems? There's so many gems with him, right? That's exactly the same point here. Is that, you know, it's, it's, it's this black and white, which we talked about last week, actually. This idea that you know you can't see a a this dualism that there has to be right or wrong. You can't have someone who may have a different view to you in, in philosophy in Moreh, and yet nonetheless be the greatest halachist. That uh, that the, you know the inability to be able to see that. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. 
the, thank you, Simon. The last question there, Sandy, I see you've got a digital hand up. I, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not actually Sandy. It's Sandy's husband, Jeffrey. I've, I've muscled in. It's just a, a little historical point because uh, I suspect it's little known. It wasn't known to us till a couple of years ago. We've been to a number of the places that have been mentioned, including Perpignan. And it turns out that from about the middle of the 1200s, for a few generations, there was an independent kingdom. It was called the Kingdom of Majorca. They spelled it like that with a J. And you would think its capital would have been in Majorca, but it wasn't. The capital was Perpignan. You can still see the castle there, where the kings ruled. And this was an independent political entity. So if you think of you know, going smoothly, either smoothly through the Jewish communities from northern Spain, from Catalonia, through to Languedoc and Provence, there's something in the way there. And I just wonder what the difference it made to this controversy that these Rabonim were hopping over a completely different kingdom that was in between them. It may have had a, a, some, something to do with it, but I don't know. I don't know enough about the history, but it was there and it lasted for some time. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because, yeah, uh, Pepriana at the time of Mamiri was in a place called Rossillon. Yeah. Um, which was different to Languedoc. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Look, the, uh, the uh, Mamiri was talking about a wedding of someone called Don Shmuel. Why does he have a Spanish name? Because, the Don, because King Jaime, good Jewish name, King Jaime was the Spanish king of mm. Majorca. Very interesting. Oh, very good. I see. We were wondering what that name was, so you clarified that. We were, we were reading it the first time, we were wondering. <laughs> Fantastic. You see? Wow. Well, I oh, forward, Thank you for that, Jessica. I look forward yes, to receiving Andy. a copy of this and reading it, because it's fascinating. Yes. Absolutely. And thank you, Absolutely. thank you for sharing it. It's, you know... Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Fine. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, everyone, for staying on till the bitter end. <laughs> Have a wonderful it's not evening. Bitter. It's not bitter at all. It's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everything which we've learned together will be Lefuat, Naomi, Neira. Once more. Once more. Yeah. Thank you so much. Amen.